Are the Supreme Court and the January 6th Select Committee on a collision course? The lead starts right now. New scrutiny over the emails between a Trump lawyer pushing the election lies and Ginny Thomas, the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Plus, a new reminder today of just how bloodthirsty some members of that MAGA mob were. Then, a deadly shooting inside an Alabama church. Police say a 71-year-old man stood up and opened fire at attendees of a potluck dinner. What we're now learning about the suspect. And just as summer temperatures heat up, thousands of kids could be left high and dry. Why hundreds of public pools and summer camps may not open. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start today with our politics lead. The wife of a Supreme Court justice could be dragged into the forefront of the investigation into the January 6th insurrection. Ginny Thomas, the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, says that she is willing to meet with the House Select Committee investigating the Capitol attack. The request for her interview comes after the committee says they have emails between Ginny Thomas and former Trump attorney John Eastman. Eastman, of course, the architect of the delusional, unconstitutional theory that Vice President Pence could single-handedly have overturned the election. Now, while the contents of the emails between the two have not been revealed, Eastman in emails to a different Trump lawyer, according to the New York Times, seemed to have insight and knowledge that Supreme Court justices were in a, quote, heated fight over a possible 2020 election case. So how would he have known that? And how is Ginny Thomas tied up in all of this? Thomas suggested to the Daily Caller that this is all just a misunderstanding and she cannot wait to clear it all up. Meantime, there is another problem facing the committee. Sources are telling CNN that the panel is striking out in their efforts to get two witnesses to testify in person for one of the upcoming hearings. The hearing is set to focus on President Trump's efforts to use the Justice Department to support his election lies. Remember, so far the Justice Department has arrested more than 840 individuals for the Capitol attack and has officially charged 255 of them with assaulting, resisting, or impeding officers. Today, a Capitol rioter named Mark Mazza, who carried a gun with hollow-point bullets, and assaulted police officers with their own batons. Today he pleaded guilty to charges, and he showed no remorse. He told the court that he regrets not having run into Speaker Nancy Pelosi during the insurrection, claiming that if he had, he would be before the court for a very different reason. That does not sound like the peaceful protests, the tourists, that some GOP lawmakers insist actually were there on January 6th. Wisconsin Republican Senator Ron Johnson saying... The rioters were in a, quote, jovial mood. Pointedly, while all this is going on today, the country is also marking 50 years since the break-in at the Watergate complex, which stood for decades as the biggest presidential scandal in U.S. history, one that eventually led to the resignation of Richard Nixon. We're going to talk to two of the reporters who broke the story, the legendary Woodward and Bernstein, in just a few minutes. But first, let's get all caught up on the present scandal with CNN's Jessica Schneider, who's piercing together, piecing together new details on the January 6th committee's plans for next week. I ask those who might be on the fence about cooperating to reach out to us. The January 6th committee still looking to talk to some key people, including Ginny Thomas, the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Chairman Benny Thompson telling reporters the committee wants to know about her communications with Trump attorney John Eastman. Eastman devised the scheme to pressure then-Vice President Mike Pence to block the certification of Biden's 2020 electoral win. The teller is verified. 
appears to be regular in form and authentic. Something Pence ultimately refused to do. We have sent uh, Ms. Thomas a letter asking us to come and talk to the committee. We look forward to her coming. You need to follow him. Jenny Thomas issued a one-line response to the committee via the conservative publication Daily Caller, saying she can't wait to clear up misconceptions. I look forward to talking to them. Eastman denying he ever discussed election litigation that might come before the Supreme Court with Jenny Thomas or with Justice Clarence Thomas. Eastman writing, we have never engaged in such discussions, would not engage in such discussions, and did not do so in December 2020 or any time else. While the committee is requesting cooperation from outstanding witnesses, it has so far refused to share full transcripts of all of its interviews with the Justice Department. The DOJ seeking to gather all available evidence as they pursue cases against hundreds of people who stormed the Capitol. We are not going to stop what we're doing to share the information that we've gotten so far with the Department of Justice. We have to do our work. The tension comes as CNN has learned the panel is running into problems securing witnesses for an upcoming hearing about Trump's efforts to pressure the Justice Department to support and promote his false election fraud claims. While Jeffrey Rosen and Richard Donahue, the top two officials at DOJ in the final weeks of the Trump administration, are expected to appear, the committee is so far striking out with Pat Cipollone. Cipollone is the former White House lawyer credited with talking some sense into Trump by threatening to resign. Sources say Cipollone is not expected to join the hearing in person, despite already talking to the committee privately. Trump took to the stage in Nashville Friday afternoon to blast the committee. Meanwhile, the committee refuses to play any of the tape of people saying the good things, the things that we want to hear. It's a one-way street. It's a rigged deal. And our team has just learned that Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger and his deputy, they will both testify Tuesday at the next hearing. That's when the committee will focus on Trump's efforts to pressure officials in key battleground states to change the election results. In the meantime, The New York Times is also reporting that the committee actually could start sharing transcripts of witness interviews with the Justice Department as soon as next month. Jake. All right, Jessica Schneider, thanks so much. With us to discuss is Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren from California. She's a member of the January 6th committee. Congresswoman, thanks for joining us. So your committee chairman, uh, Benny Thompson, he says he has sent a letter to Ginny Thomas to testify. She told the Daily Caller she would like to testify to clear up misconceptions. Have you heard from her directly that she will meet with the committee? Well, I haven't personally talked to her, but we sent a letter. It was privately sent, and she made a decision to disclose it publicly and to say publicly that she will meet with us. So I'm glad for that. And we look forward to talking with her. What are you hoping to learn from her? Well, I'm not going to go into all the details, but as you, as you know, from the letter she released, uh, the email exchanges between her and Dr. Eastman led to questions that we had. And so we will be exploring uh, various elements of that as well as other information in the committee's possession. So uh, we'll leave that for the interview. And um, I'm glad that she's going to come in. Did she play a role in the conspiracy that the committee is saying happened uh, to undo the election? I'm not in a position to explore all of that with you now. I think that the proper course would be to wait for her to come in and we will, um, you know, go through these issues with her. We're learning that the Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger and his deputy Gabe Sterling will testify at the next hearing 
on Tuesday. What are you hoping to establish with them? Well, the next hearing is going to uh, go through the efforts that the president made to pressure uh, officials in states, including Georgia, but not just Georgia, to overthrow the results of the election and uh, appoint electors for the losing candidate, President Trump. And I think uh, we've all heard the infamous phone call where then-President Trump was trying to force uh, Raffensperger to find votes, essentially just make stuff up so he could become uh, the president again. But we'll go through a variety of issues uh, that we think will be revealing. Not everything has, has been out in the public so far. We're hearing from Justice Department sources that they're very frustrated that your committee has not been sharing transcripts and all relevant information with them as soon as possible to help them with uh, their prosecution efforts. Congressman Schiff said that the problem was the breadth of the request. Uh, I don't understand this this problem. Why not just send them over the data, just give them a a zip file or USB? I mean, what is the issue here? Well, there are a couple of issues. One... Um, to ask for every piece of information, some of, not very much, but some information uh, is been provided on a confidential basis to expect to respect the um, safety of a few individuals. But, you know, it's, it's really not the way that DOJ is supposed to work. I mean, they've known uh, the, about all the witnesses we've had for over a year. They could subpoena them. They could uh, open up grand jury, uh, grand juries. Uh, we're certainly going to be engaged with them and provide necessary transcripts and information that might be necessary. But you, you don't have the executive branch tromping into the legislative branch and essentially turning our uh, investigation upside down. That's not the way things have proceeded. But we will engage with the DOJ. We will provide what's necessary in an orderly way. Well, specific, we want the prosecutor. Specifically, what we're hearing from prosecutors is, is they, they say some of the Proud Boys, for example, that they had to delay their trials because of this issue of documents. They're saying they, they need the witness transcripts, not only for trials, but also future prosecutions. And in fact, they also need to turn over any potential exculpatory evidence that your committee has found, and they have deadlines to turn that over, the, the, the Brady that's, uh, evidence. No, that's legally false, Jake, because yeah. they have to turn over under um, uh, existing uh, rules the evidence that they have. They don't have to turn over evidence they don't have. So, um, And the uh, testimony received by congressional committees is protected under the speech or debate clause in the Constitution. So that's just, uh, you know, a serious misunderstanding. But let's cut to the chase. We're going to provide what we can that's necessary for them. It just makes me wonder, though, what have they been doing over there? I mean, they have a much uh, easier way to compel testimony under their subpoenas than we do under ours. So hopefully this shows that they're gearing up we're going to make sure we're doing uh, what we are able to do to assist. But we're not going to let our investigation be disrupted. All right, Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren, Democrat of California, thank you so much. Appreciate it. You bet. 
Joining us now to discuss, Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward. They're out with a brand new version of their book, All the President's Men, to mark the 50th anniversary of the break-in at the Democratic Party headquarters in the Watergate office building. Uh, thank you so much to be here. It's always great to have you. Uh, Carl, uh, let me start with you. Uh, you just uh, heard um, Zoe Lofgren. Uh, what do you think, let's just, I guess, focus on the, the Ginny Thomas part of this. What, what do you think is going on there? Well, I think you've got the very tricky situation where the wife of a Supreme Court justice is very obviously involved in some way in a conspiracy in which there really is a conspiracy to overturn, try to attempt a coup to overturn the election results. And I think the committee feels they have to go very carefully when you have the wife of a Supreme Court justice who may be involved. I mean, let's look at what happened in Watergate, where you have a unanimous decision of the Supreme Court to compel Richard Nixon to turn over his tapes. And now you have this whole question of Donald Trump trying to subvert the Constitution, prevent the lawful transition of power to his successor. Mm -hmm. And now you have a record of correspondence in which Clarence Thomas, the Supreme Court Justice, his wife is obviously involved through documentary evidence that we know already that Bob Woodward wrote about. In some way, her handprints are in this conspiracy, whether benign or not. So we're going into an area we have never been before in the history of the United States that might involve conversations between the Justice Clarence Thomas and his wife involving a conspiracy to defraud the government and perhaps seditious conduct such as the Proud Boys have been charged with. What do you think? Uh, uh, the question is, why would Ginny Thomas, who uh, has been married to Clarence Thomas, the justice, for a long time, is a big supporter of his and somebody who very much believes in him in the conservative point of view. She sent 29 text messages to Mark Meadows, Trump's chief of staff. Why is that going on? What's, uh, you know, whether it's a conspiracy, whether it's, I mean, you said a benign, I don't know, there's a benign conspiracy. <laughs> right, benign I think explanation. The, the question is, what, you know, the Jake Tapper, what's going on here? That's right. What's going on here? What's this about? And they're in the process of investigating, and uh, she's also exchanging at least one text with, uh, you know, the, the very famous leader of the plan to subvert the election yeah. after Trump, uh, John Eastman, the lawyer. And so uh, I, I'm sure they would like lots of time to look at this. But uh, where do you draw that line between d did he know that she was doing this? Did, she, did he support it? Is that something, how relevant is that? What actions were taken? I, I think the, one of the most remarkable things in all of this is Meadows' answer to Jenny Thomas in, in one text message saying, this is a fight between good and evil yeah. about overturning the election, namely right. who's going to be certified right. as president. Well, that's a pretty strong stand for the White House chief of staff to make. Yeah, and, and uh, Carl, the New York Times reported, uh, Maggie Haberman and her colleague reported uh, emails that Eastman, John Eastman, the architect of this crazy theory, 
uh, that Pence could overturn the election, that he sent about the Supreme Court before January 6th. Right. And one said, so the odds are not based on the legal merits, but an assessment of the justices' spines. And I understand that there is a heated fight underway. And Eastman added, for those willing to do their duty, we should help them by giving them a Wisconsin cert petition to add into the mix. Eastman seemed to have some insight into what was going on at the U.S. Supreme Court, insight that it was not common knowledge at all. Well, that the obvious suggestion, but we don't know if the suggestion is true or not, is that there was a discussion between Clarence Thomas about what the court may be doing and his wife. Uh, so what did the justice know and what did his wife know and when did each of them know it? That's a really relevant question. In Watergate, it was about the president. This is about the president, but it's our ex-president. But it also, at this point, is about a Supreme Court justice, and it needs to be investigated, and it will. What do you think when you hear people say that if, <coughs> that if, that if Richard Nixon then had today's Republican Party, today's Supreme Court, and Fox News, that he would have survived the Watergate scandal, that, that, that because he didn't have that infrastructure, uh, he, he suffered, but that uh, Trump, for example, is lucky that he has it. Well, no, I think the answer is the Republicans 50 years ago, uh, exemplified by Barry Goldwater, stood their ground and said, wait a minute, this is unacceptable behavior. And as we know, Goldwater, I mean, this is... This is one of the great reporting moments for you and (laughs) myself. After Nixon resigned, Goldwater and we're doing the second book on Nixon's last year in office. The final days, great book. Yeah, the final days. And Goldwater invites us up to his apartment to read his diary and, I mean, tell the story because it's... We got to his apartment. Goldwater pours himself a big tumbler of whiskey, then pours a big tumbler for each of us, each of us, reaches into a cabinet and pulls out his diary of the last days of President Nixon's uh, presidency. And he says, I'm going to read this to you. And what he reads to us is how he and the leaders of the House and Senate, the Republican leaders, marched to the Oval Office, met with Richard Nixon. And Nixon knew he was going to be impeached by the House. And he thought he would be acquitted by the Senate in a Senate trial. And Nixon looked at Goldwater and said, Barry, how many votes do I have? And Goldwater is reading this to us. And Nixon says, how many votes, Barry, do I have for acquittal in the Senate? Fully expecting Goldwater is going to tell him, you you got enough to prevail, Mr. President. And Goldwater looks him in the eye and says, Mr. President, right now you may have four to six votes and you don't have mine. And he's reading us this. And the next day, Nixon announced he was going to resign because he knew from Goldwater and those other leaders he was through. That's an incredible story. (laughs) And this is an emotional convulsion for Nixon. I mean, he's abandoned. That's right. And he did announce his resignation the next night. But as we found out and have in the final days, that... Nixon had Kissinger up to the Lincoln sitting room. And Nixon was drinking and so distraught, he said to Kissinger, Henry, you and I have to get down on our knees and pray. And they got down on their knees 
and Kissinger is going, what is this? And Nixon is pounding the carpet and kind of uh, giving this Shakespearean speech of what has happened to me? What have I done, Henry? And <laughs> Kissinger's trying to console him. And, and Kissinger goes back to see his two aides, Larry Eagleburger and Brent Scowcroft, and he's, they've never seen him like this. And they said, what the hell happened up there? And Kissinger sitting there dazed in the phone rings. And it's Nixon. And he says, Henry, please don't tell anyone that I cried and I was not strong. Oh, my God. What an and, incredible. of course, Kissinger did tell people. <laughs> and the result was we found out and found put it, it in, in the book. In the yeah. final days. Amazing, amazing. Yeah. I want to sit down and have a bourbon with you guys right now. But I can't. <laughs> I have to go through a commercial. Thanks so much for Thank being you. here. Thank of course, you. Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward, the legends, out with a new version of their book, All the President's Men. Uh, pick it up. It's uh, an awesome book. Uh, I read it in hardcover, of course. Uh, Ukraine's president calls them the dead cities. But CNN found out there is life there. However, thousands of people are barely hanging on. Then staff shortages are making a big splash, causing a summer bummer for thousands of kids across the country. Stay with us. In our world lead now, Vladimir Putin taunted the West during his speech today. In a dig at the United States, Putin declared an end to what he called the unipolar world. He also claimed Western efforts to crush Russia's economy have failed. He has a point there. Earlier this week, the New York Times cited a study showing that Russia's oil revenue is soaring despite Western sanctions. Putin additionally insisted his military will achieve all of its goals in Ukraine, and if those goals include reducing almost everything to rubble, he's also on target with that assessment. An advisor to the mayor of Mariupol calls conditions there medieval. He says only 2% of the households in the southeastern Ukrainian city have running water, and people are washing their clothes in puddles on the streets. Conditions seem nearly as dire in eastern Ukraine, where CNN's Ben Wiedemann went looking for signs of life in cities on the war's front lines. A portent of things to come on the road to Lysychansk, a city that has been in the line of fire for months. A school basement serves as shelter for dozens of residents. Tetiana shows us where they sleep, the only light provided by our camera. Everyone is outside now, she says, because it's too dark and hard to breathe down here. Outside, they wait as soup cooks over a fire. There's no gas, no power, no water, Lydia tells me. We have nothing. Most are old, tired, terrified, and beyond despair. I'm alone, says 82-year-old Masha. My legs are tired. I can't go anywhere. Lyudmila is leaving. We thought it would calm down, but it only gets worse and worse, she says. I can't take these sounds anymore. Natalia is leaving too. The windows in my house are broken, she says. There's a huge crater by my house. It's the end of the world. The sunny weather belies what has become a post-apocalyptic existence. Residents line up for unfiltered water so they can wash and flush toilets. Almost four months of war with no end in sight. Frustration flares. 
Where's our mayor? Where's our governor? asks Mikola. They should have come here at least once. Just across the river, savage street fighting rages in Severodonetsk. Lysychansk isn't near the front. It is the front. At 3 o'clock in the afternoon, Russian aircraft hit this building. This building was serving as a shelter for people. Three were killed, and it really goes to show there is nowhere in Lysychansk that's safe. Yudmila was in that building, her husband injured in the strike. Yesterday he was crushed under the rubble, she says. She can do nothing but weep. She waits for a ride to see him in hospital. And negotiations are underway, apparently, between the Ukrainians and the Russians to evacuate civilians from Severodonetsk. Uh, the only condition Ukraine has is that Russia observes a complete ceasefire when that evacuation takes place. But the track record of Russia respecting such ceasefires isn't very good. Jake? Ben Wiedemann in Ukraine for us. Thank you so much. Coming up, a third person has died from that church shooting in Alabama as we learn more about the 71-year-old suspect. Stay with us. Topping our national lead, police say that a third victim has died after that mass shooting at a church in Vestavia Hills, Alabama. Vestavia Hills, Alabama, just outside Birmingham. Police say a gunman opened fire at attendees of a church potluck dinner last night. Please have a 71-year-old man in custody. As CNN's Nadia Romero reports for us. The alleged gunman was stopped and subdued and held down by another parishioner. We are getting a report of a possible active shooter. Three people are dead after a shooting Thursday night at a church in Vestavia Hills, Alabama, a suburb of Birmingham. Have an active shooter incident with injury. Seen as an obscure. At least three patients. Police say St. Stephen's Episcopal Church was hosting a potluck dinner when the suspect, a 71-year-old man who was attending the event, opened fire. At some point, he produced a handgun and began shooting, striking three victims. The best estimate we have at this time for patients is going to be in the parish hall. Shooter has been held down at this time, but the scene is not secure. Investigators say after opening fire, the suspect was held down by another person at the event. We can't get radio reception. Multiple people down, subject custody. Police identifying the victims as 84-year-old Walter Rainey, who died on the scene, and 75-year-old Sarah Yeager, who died at the hospital. The third victim, an 84-year-old woman, died at the hospital Friday. The ordeal leaving the community in disbelief. You see it in places you've never been to, people you don't know, and then now you're thinking, that could have been one of my friends down there. Former U.S. Senator Doug Jones has lived in the neighborhood for nearly three decades. Uh, but I think it just goes to show that no community uh, is immune uh, from this kind of uh, gun violence that we see playing out across the country. No one is immune. So far, investigators have not released a motive, but say the suspect who is in custody acted alone. Police praising the bravery of the person who held down the suspect until they arrived. The person that subdued the suspect, in my opinion, is a hero. Earlier today, parishioners packed a prayer vigil at St. Luke's Episcopal Church about six miles away. I think the church has got a lot to mourn. 
So the mayor here in this town says this was simply a senseless act of violence. He says that there are chaplains providing grief counseling to the victims' families and the first responders. And Jake, as you know, churches, places of worship are not immune to gun violence. Today marks seven years since nine people were gunned down in their own church, Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina. Seven years today. Jake? Nadia Romero, thank you so much. Appreciate it. This river crossing is the site of eight deaths in just one week. And now U.S. Border Patrol agents are undergoing new training to try to save lives. Stay with us. We are back with our national lead and a closer look at the perilous journey some migrants are willing to take in hopes of crossing the U.S.-Mexican border and getting into the United States. The risks can be quite deadly. Once you get past the human traffickers... You can drown in canals or fall from a border fence. Those are just some of the dangerous situations migrants face merely from the journey itself. U.S. Customs and Border Protection says that it has stopped nearly 240,000 migrants who crossed just in the month of May. CNN's Priscilla Alvarez has more now on just how big a problem this is and how officials in Texas are responding. In these roaring waters, first responders train for the worst. Migrants who have been swept away while trying to cross the U.S.-Mexico border. You get pushed underneath, you get pushed out, and so, you know, it it could mean life or death. Already, authorities say there have been eight deaths here in the span of a week, signaling a grim outlook for the summer as migrants journey to the border in extreme conditions. The canal here, intended to get water to farmers, poses a unique danger with higher water levels and a fast-moving current. What we can do now is what we call a live bait. Chris Menendez, captain of the El Paso Fire Department water rescue team, is bracing for more rescues and potential drownings. We can throw a rope, throw them a ring, and they can rescue themselves off of that device. But a lot of times, that's not the case. We come in when it's too late. They're deceased. Rescues already outpaced last fiscal year. Since October, there have been more than 14,000 searches and rescues along the southwest border, according to U.S. Customs and Border Protection. That's compared to over 12,800 in fiscal year 2021. Border officials are on high alert, issuing warnings about the sweltering desert heat and crossing dangerous waters. Migrants will also try to climb over the border wall and fall in the process. In the El Paso sector, there have been over 229 injuries since October from those falls. Agents will try to render aid or take migrants to the hospital if necessary. A lot of the people who are at the shelter have been deported. Dylan Corbett, head of the Hope Border Institute in El Paso, says built-up pressure and insecurity has driven migrants to make risky decisions. It's an index really of desperation, an index of pain, um, an index of frustration of not being able to access asylum at our border. A Trump-era pandemic restriction is still in effect on the border, allowing officials to turn away migrants. That hasn't dissuaded people, and thousands continue to wait in Mexico. Had you come last week, the whole place was full. Ruben Garcia runs a network of shelters here taking in migrants. Over the past several months, the numbers have consistently been at 3,000 per week, 3,000 per week. So 
There were nights where we had close to 400 people sleeping here. Southern border cities are adjusting to the reality that migration flows won't slow down. El Paso is now considering a processing center to alleviate stress shelters. So what does this say about where we're going? I really believe that this is the new world that we're going to be experiencing and it's not going to be a temporary situation. Jake, as you mentioned earlier, CBP stopped migrants nearly 240,000 times last month. That is a number that is going up month by month, and it raises serious concerns by authorities here in El Paso, Texas, and across the border as the temperatures hit the triple digits. Jake? All right, Priscilla Alvarez in El Paso, Texas, thank you so much. No lifeguards would mean no public pools. The summer staffing shortage that is leaving thousands of kids quite literally high and dry. Stay with us. In our money lead now, plans to cool off at pools or beaches this summer could be completely ruined because of the current U.S. labor shortage. Simply put, there are not enough lifeguards. The American Lifeguard Association says about a third of the nation's public pools will not open this season due to the scarcity of staff. CNN's Vanessa Yurkiewicz is in Philadelphia with the struggle to attract summer workers. Had you ever been a lifeguard before? I was a lifeguard when I was 16. How long ago was that? I'm 70 now. This summer, Robin Borlando is taking the plunge, getting back in the pool in Philadelphia to be a lifeguard 54 years later. I want to do something and feel worthwhile, purpose or something. She found her calling after she heard the Philadelphia Parks and Recreation Department wouldn't be able to open all of their 70 pools this summer. They're facing lifeguard shortages, and so is the rest of the country. One-third of the 309,000 public pools nationwide will not open. How many do you think you realistically will be able to open this year? We're going to have about 80% of the staff we need. Um, So we're hopeful we're going to get to about 80% of the pools that we're able to open. It's part of the fierce competition for workers in a red-hot summer job market, fueled in part by the lack of foreign workers following COVID immigration restrictions. There are 11.4 million unfilled jobs with an unemployment rate of 3.6%. And despite raising wages, a marketing campaign on TikTok, and free certification, the Philadelphia Parks and Rec Department can't find enough lifeguards. We have people saying to us all the time, like Target's offering 18 an hour, you know, I'll be in the air conditioning and I get a little discount. Who doesn't want a discount at Target? Right. How, do you, how do you fight that though? It's hard. When public pools don't open, it leaves some neighborhoods without an escape from the heat and crime. We're experiencing a huge uptick in violent crime, specifically gun violence. Critical for us to have safe spaces like this. And across the country, YMCAs, which typically serve lower income families, have 75% of the 250,000 staff members they need to operate. We have competition in our maintenance, cleaning and cooking staff with anything that would fall under the hospitality industry. And those camps, more than 1,700 of them nationally, also act as childcare when kids are out of school, critical so parents can work. We still have at most of our camps a need for more staff to be able to take children off the wait list. As Borlando waits for Philadelphia's pools to open by the end of this month, she now sees her role as more than just a lifeguard. How do you think it's going to be different this time around? Well, I'm hoping that being a mother and a grandmother, 
I'm hoping I'm a little wiser now. And that's what I want to bring, just natural, just that warmth, that friend. But don't, don't test me, though. And for families who may not be able to afford big summer vacations this year because of inflation and everything costing so much more, public pools, beaches and day camps become so critical. So when you don't have the staff and these places can't open, it really limits activities for families. And Jake, right here in New York City, the New York Parks Department announced that there will be no swim lessons this summer at public pools. That is especially important for the American Lifeguard Association, who's concerned and says, that when kids don't learn to swim, Jake, it shrinks the pool of candidates who go on to become lifeguards, only prolonging the shortage, Jake. All right, Vanessa Jurkiewicz, thank you so much. In our national lead, four military jets flew low over Arlington National Cemetery today as a final tribute during the funeral service for Brigadier General Charles McGee. McGee was one of the last of the highly decorated Tuskegee Airmen, the first squadron of black aviators in the segregated U.S. military during the Second World War. Over the course of his career, McGee successfully completed 409 air combat missions across three wars, World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. McGee lived to be 102, spending the rest of his long life encouraging young people to follow their dreams, to persevere through challenges, and of course, to pursue careers in aviation. What a guy. May his memory be a blessing. A quick programming note, join some of the biggest stars as they lift their voices for Juneteenth, a global celebration for freedom. You can see it live Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern, only on CNN. Coming up, the head of WWE is on the ropes after a smackdown involving hush money and an alleged sex scandal. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead, I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, On the Ropes, the man who is World Wrestling Entertainment, Vince McMahon, is stepping down as the chair as allegations are made public that he paid millions of dollars in hush money to cover up scandals. Plus, the ongoing threat of Trump's election lies playing out in New Mexico, a county commissioner defying the state Supreme Court there and refusing to certify votes by today, which happens to be the same day he's being sentenced for his January 6th conviction for trespassing at the Capitol. Leading this hour, President Biden warning Americans do not travel to Ukraine as the United States works to track down three American veterans who went missing there. The Americans who volunteered to assist Ukrainian forces are now feared to be in Russian hands. Retired U.S. Marine Grady was last heard from in Ukraine around April 23rd, according to a family friend. Alexander Druki and Andy Tai Nakhwin went missing last week. Video surfaced today on pro-Russian social media appearing to show those two men in an unknown location. We're not showing the video because it appears to show the men under duress. CNN's Sam Kiley is in Kharkiv, just miles from where those two American veterans were last seen. He spoke with an American who was fighting with Andy and Alex just before they went missing. These two American fighters have their hands bound behind them. They're dressed in uniforms, not their own and they may well have been captured by the very Russians that they'd been fighting. This, as far as it goes, is good news for the comrade who last saw a T-72 tank open fire on his two friends. Does that give you any kind of cause for hope? Absolutely. Absolutely. I wish I could say with 100% certainty that it's not a fake, but I have a lot of hope that it's them. A former US serviceman, he was in the same battle, as Alex Drukey and Andy Wen when they went missing in action. 
He fears Russian reprisals in Ukraine and beyond and wants his identity and voice hidden. He uses the codename Pip. But for the first time on TV, he described what happened on June the 9th, about 20 miles northeast of Kharkiv. The team was sent out on a mission on the 9th, and they showed up in the area of operations, and a full-scale Russian armoured assault was underway. A hasty defence was set up, two anti-tank teams were set up. Alex and Andy fired an RPG at a BMP that was coming through the woods and destroyed it. A T-72 then turned its turret and fired upon them, drove a few more meters forward and hit the anti-tank mine that our Ukrainian officer had placed. We suspect they were knocked out by either the T-72 tank shooting at them or the blast of the mine. So far, Russian officials have denied any knowledge of the missing Americans. Two Britons, both with UK and Ukrainian citizenship, were recently sentenced to death on charges of being mercenaries by a so-called court in the Russian-backed rebel area of Ukraine that calls itself the Donetsk People's Republic. They were long-standing members of the Ukrainian Armed Forces. Wayne and Druki had served alongside Pip in a three-man team since April. As far as I'm aware, we're paid about the same, if not exactly the same, as a Ukrainian soldier who's on the front. And money is certainly not my motivation for being here. And I know it's not Andy's and it's not Alex's either. Ukraine has been appealing for urgent supplies of ammunition and heavy weapons. It's also recruited large numbers, the details are kept secret, of foreign volunteers into its international legion. So what advice would you give, finally, for anybody thinking of wanting to join the Legion? Oh, wow. Well, if you have no military background, if you don't have any combat experience, if you expect to come here with air support, intense helicopter support, then stay home, because that is not the case. It is the Russian army, and they have massive amounts of artillery, they have massive amounts of armor, and the Ukrainians are giving it their damnedest. Did you make the right call? I'll admit to questioning it once in a while, but I think, yes. For those captured by Russia, that answer may no longer be quite so positive. Now, Jake, of course, uh, huge numbers of Ukrainians are also being captured and even more killed every day. The government estimates for Ukrainian dead that they admit to is some 100 to 200 a day, with about 500 being injured. That effectively is what NATO would define as a battalion of infantry dying or being wounded, taken off the battlefield every day. This has come to a desperate turn now in Ukraine, which is why uh, the president downwards in this country is asking the international community for all of those heavy weapons and ammunition to go with them. Jake? Sam Kiley in Kharkiv, Ukraine. Thank you so much. Russia is trying to put on a brave face, rejecting the notion that Western sanctions are hurting its economy, while President Vladimir Putin hammered the United States at an economic forum today. When the U.S. declared they won the Cold War, they declared themselves messengers of the Lord on Earth, who have no responsibilities, only interests. And they have declared those interests sacred. CNN's Fred Pleiken was at that forum where Putin scoffed at the mountain of sanctions against Russia. As Russia continues its invasion of Ukraine, President Vladimir Putin laid out his plans to counter U.S.-led sanctions. Putin making clear Russia will not back down from what they call the special military operation. All goals of the military operation will be accomplished, he said. Putin also claiming Russia was forced to invade because the U.S. was bringing Ukraine into its orbit. 
Russia's decision to conduct a special military operation was forced, he said. Difficult, of course, but forced and necessary. Putin then threatening the U.S. moment as the world's top power is coming to an end. When they won the Cold War, the U.S. declared themselves God's own representatives on Earth, he says, people who have no responsibilities, only interests. They have declared those interests sacred. The U.S. and its allies reject any notion of fueling the conflict in Ukraine and have hit Moscow with massive economic sanctions. But Putin says the measures aren't working. The calculation was clear, to crush the Russian economy with a swoop, he says. Obviously, it didn't work. The U.S. accuses Russia of worsening world hunger by blockading Ukrainian ports and causing a massive spike in gas prices. Putin again blaming the West. Even higher prices, threatening famine in the poorest countries, and this will be entirely on the conscience of the U.S. administration and the Euro bureaucracy, he said. As Western companies pull out of Russia in droves, Moscow is trying to reorient its economy. A top Russian senator saying he believes Russia's invasion of Ukraine prevented a larger war with NATO, even as Russia's own losses mount. We are all aware about the losses which take place now. But I am absolutely sure that we have managed to prevent a huge war, probably a third world war. And Vladimir Putin says the operation in Ukraine will continue until Russia feels it has achieved its aims. And I think it's really important to point out that Vladimir Putin, the moment that he took the stage and started talking, ripping into the United States. And this certainly didn't seem like a Russian leader that was rethinking what is going on in Ukraine, uh, what his military is doing in Ukraine. In fact, he seemed as though he was very sure of himself and certainly doesn't appear to be looking uh, to change course uh, anytime soon. In fact, I think at this point in time, he believes that he's in a fairly strong position. There were two things that were quite surprising, though, and this happened uh, after the actual speech took place. He was part of a panel discussion. On the one hand, he said that he had no issues with Ukraine joining the European Union, if that's something that's going to happen. And he also said that he believed that at some point, inevitably, relations between Russia and Ukraine will normalize. Of course, the Ukrainians might think very differently about that, Jake. Fred Pleiken in St. Petersburg, Russia, for us. Thank you so much. We're joined now by Ukrainian member of parliament, Yevgenia Kravchuk. Uh, first of all, Madam Legislator, I want to give you the opportunity. I know the Russian government and Russian government officials, especially Vladimir Putin, tell a lot of lies. Uh, is there, are there any in particular that you heard them saying just now that you want to respond to? Well, you know, I just see that they sort of believe in their own propaganda because they live in their own world. Uh, and Russia wants to, to show that it's a superpower. But in fact, the GDP of Russia is the same GDP as state of Texas. So it does have oil. It does have gas. He want, uh, the, this country wants to blackmail the whole world, to threaten the Western civilization. But the, the West is much stronger. It, it shouldn't be, you know, uh, covering that the West is uh, stronger. Uh, you know, the, uh, Putin understands only the language of force. You know, I took to, uh, to the studio a piece of Russian jet, Mm -hmm. uh, Suhoi 34, it was uh, shut down uh, by our military in March at the Kyiv region. And at the same time, Russians were selling the propaganda that Ukraine doesn't have anything left in their aircraft, not, no de uh, defense system, just fly there, 
kill people, you know, nothing happens. Here yeah, what happened, you know, we shot them and we are uh, defending our country, we pushed them away from the north of the country. We're planning the uh, operation to counterattack to the south and of course to stand, uh, you know, and defend the Donbass area, Donetsk and Luhansk, we need those heavy weapons because, you know, it's impossible. I mean, your, uh, your people in, the, in the, this piece and video told that it's a lot of hard artillery that Russians are using. So right. we need, um, you know, at least to, to get closer with the numbers of artillery that we use. And then, you know, their morale is really low. So Our morale is much higher. So, you know, they will uh, uh, flee, but we need those weapons on the ground. Right. And the United States has been providing a lot of heavy weaponry and a lot of money. I know a lot of countries, other countries in the West have talked a big game but not actually provided the weaponry that they have promised, uh, most notably uh, Vladimir, um, Volodymyr Zelensky, uh, the president of Ukraine, called out Olaf Scholz, uh, the chancellor of Germany, this week. Um, what countries need to step up more? I mean, I understand that you think the U.S. Keep, needs to keep doing more, and the United States government is. Uh, it's one of the few things that our Congress votes on in a bipartisan way. Um, what other countries need to step up more? Well, I think that leadership of America is crucial because everyone is looking to America as a leader of a free world. And then, you know, sort of say, okay, Americans are giving that much uh, weapons. We'll, we will not give, you know, more, but at least it won't be uh, a, a much less. So uh, Great Britain is backing us uh, up as well. And of course, you know, Germany and France, we expect uh, could do more as the leaders, you know, in the European Union. But uh, first of all, I would like to thank uh, for bipartisan support for the for a $40 billion act that was voted in the Congress. And I'm here, uh, I came here with a delegation from Ukrainian Parliament to meet our counterparts, both in Senate and House of Representatives, to thank them for voting uh, this and to make sure that those money that were allocated are being, you know, transferred to the right. weapons that we need. And that, you know, needs to happen as soon as possible because, I mean, we do not have a lot of time before the winter. And Putin is just waiting so West would forget about us. Yep. You know, we will go out of the news. Then, you know, the winter, the gas prices is sort of like, so he would be just, you know, sort of waiting for West to blink first. Right. Well, we're, we're, we haven't forgotten about it here at CNN, but I know other news Thank channels, other news channels uh, have moved on. Um, you, last time you and I spoke was in Ukraine, and you were talking about the importance of designated Russia as a state sponsor of terror. Uh, I know that you met with House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, and you say you had a good conversation with her about, about that. Why is that important to you, and are you frustrated that President Biden has not taken that step yet? Um, and th th thank you for this question. And we did have a good conversation with Nancy Pelosi, and she totally agrees that it's a good step to put forward. Of course, I understand it should be, uh, you know, put in the right way, the, the right definitions to talk to Department of State. Uh, but she, she uh, supports it. And actually, uh, as I understood from the meetings in the Senate, there will be a vote for the resolution might be a vote, I would say might be a vote for the resolution next Wednesday in the Senate. Uh, and I really hope, you know, it will get moving. Why it's so important? Because then other countries, especially in the European Union, uh, will not sort of have other choice. I mean, it's, it's a blacklist, blacklist of terrorists, you know. Yeah, it's so great to have you here. Good to see you again. Thank and you for I will see me. you again, maybe in Ukraine again. Yes. Thank you so much for being here. Will the White House's new messaging on inflation backfire, even among Democrats? Then, a river is about to run empty for a famous fly fishing destination, all because of a drought 
hundreds of miles away. Stay with us. In our money lead, a wicked time on Wall Street. The S&P 500 closing out its worst week since March 2020 when the pandemic hit. The Dow also closing below 30,000 for a second straight day. But President Biden is trying to reassure the American people that a recession is not inevitable, even if soaring inflation and rising interest rates have consumers feeling understandably quite battered. As CNN's Caitlin Collins reports for us now, this comes as the White House swats down reports that it is considering one potential kind of gimmicky solution for dealing with rising gas prices. Higher prices are plaguing President Biden as he promises the nation he's working on bringing them down. I'm using every lever available to me to bring down prices for the American people. The White House only growing more concerned after mortgage rates surged over half a percentage point this week amid rising inflation and a big interest rate hike from the Federal Reserve. Biden defending his record and highlighting how the U.S. is not the only nation battling inflation. With Russia's war driving up inflation worldwide, threatening vulnerable countries with uh, severe food shortages, we have to work together to mitigate the immediate fallout of this crisis. But it may get worse before it gets better. Former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers, who was criticized by the Biden administration for saying inflation would rise, is now predicting a recession in the next two years. We are likely to have a recession. I think we have overheated uh, the economy and gotten some bad luck. And when the pendulum swings too far one way, it tends to swing back uh the other way. Biden disagrees, telling the Associated Press a recession is not inevitable and declaring the U.S. is in a stronger position than any nation to overcome this inflation. Still, the White House is scrambling for solutions. We understand the anxiety. The president understands the anxiety, is focused on what he can do to lower costs for families. Uh, to address the the price of gasoline, although that is set on the world market. Biden's economic team debated sending rebate cards to millions to help pay at gas stations, but one official told CNN today that option is unlikely due to the complicated logistics. All options are on the table because he understands the pain that this is causing for families. As the president's poll numbers on the economy have continued to slide, Biden telling the Associated Press that people are, quote, really, really down following two years of COVID, a volatile economy and soaring gas prices. Biden saying, quote, they're really down. Their need for mental health in America has skyrocketed because people have seen everything upset. And Jake, in that interview, the president also pushed back on this criticism, often coming from Republicans, that the American Rescue Plan that he got passed through Congress last year has contributed to higher prices. He said the idea that it caused inflation, he believes, is, quote, bizarre. And Jake, we should note that as the president is on this messaging push, saying that the economy is better than people think, this is a pretty rare sit-down interview for him to do, especially with a print outlet. Kaylin Collins at the White House, thanks so much. What happens when you put advocates of Trump's election lies in charge of actual elections? Well, some voters in New Mexico are finding out. Some breaking news for you now. U.S. Embassy officials visited Paul Whelan in a Russian prison today. It was the first time officials have visited him since last November. Whelan, as you know, has been in Russian custody since December 2018 when he says he was wrongfully detained and later convicted of what he calls bogus espionage charges. Today, Secretary of State Antony Blinken tweeted, quote, Paul's resiliency throughout his nearly three and a half years of detention by Russia is remarkable. We will never stop advocating for his release. 
In our politics lead today, a New Mexico County official convicted of trespassing during the January 6th insurrection is now refusing to certify election results from the state's 2022 primary last week. Commissioner Coy Griffin and the other two members of the Otero County Commission are claiming without evidence, of course, that Dominion voting machines cannot be trusted. They are echoing former President Trump's conspiracy theories since disproven about the 2020 election. Let's discuss with CNN's Drew Griffin. Drew, first of all, this is just nuts. New Mexico's Secretary of State says the county commissioners are breaking state election laws by refusing to certify the results based on these lies. So what happens now? Well, these three commissioners have until, I guess, end of business today to certify that June 7th primary in their county or face legal action from their own state. And Jake, it shows you just how far these conspiracy-believing elected officials are willing to go to now manipulate elections in this country. There's no evidence of any fraud in that primary election. But these three commissioners, all Republicans, say they believe their own counties. Dominion voting machines can't be trusted. Part of that completely debunked conspiracy, first pushed by Donald Trump's disgraced attorneys explaining his loss in 2020. And as we heard in the January 6th hearings this week, Jake, even Trump's own attorneys found no issues with the machines or the votes. But Coy Griffin doesn't seem to care much about the facts. I interviewed him at length last year. He simply refuses to accept the truth. The New Mexico Supreme Court ordered Coy and these two commissioners to certify this election, but unclear what the punishment could be if they do refuse. Griffin says he doesn't doesn't matter to him. He will not certify. If they want to throw me in jail, if they want to criminally charge me with the felony, I would rather go down with dignity and honor making a sacrifice for the good of my country than try to save myself in this. It's a war right now, I feel like. It's just like a battle. And whenever you're in a battle and you're engaged, you take it to the end, no matter what the personal ramifications may be. To quote former Vice President Pence, that's rubber room stuff. Um, Drew, Coy Griffin was arrested and put in jail after January 6th. He was charged with trespassing at the Capitol. He was sentenced today after being convicted on that charge. So what happened there? There was some speculation he could get up to a year in prison because he has refused to accept responsibility. He did make the government go to trial, uh, and he hasn't had any remorse for his involvement, but he only trespassed on the grounds of the Capitol, uh, basically convicting himself by posting that video right there, showing him trespassing. He wasn't violent at the rally, and today a federal judge sentenced him to time served the nearly three weeks he's already spent behind bars for that, uh, along with a year's probation and $3,000 fine. Jake, knowing him, he'll no doubt wear this like a a badge of honor. Yeah, Drew Griffin, thanks so much. Let's discuss with my panel. Alice, let me start with you because this is just a preview of what we're going to get if election liars in Nevada and Pennsylvania and all over the country uh, win. Except it won't just be one county, it will be entire states. Yeah, that's a concern. Thank goodness we have secretaries of states across the country that are working hard to make sure and protect the integrity of the election, because that's what we need to get out of uh, 2020 more than anything is restoring the confidence in the election process. Look, I think what we need to see in each state and, and across the country is making sure that people follow, follow the law and what is constitutionally obligated at the state level and the, the U.S. level in terms of certifying the election at the state and also here in Washington, D.C., because the, the worst fallout of 
what we saw on 2020 and on January 6th is people watch what this guy is doing there and across the country. And they're saying, why should I even go vote if, if someone's going to hold up my vote because they see false claims of election fraud? Why am I going to vote? We need to restill confidence in the voting but process. But just as a note, I mean, a lot of the people running for secretary of state mm-hmm. in some of these states are also people actually running on these election lies. They're running on the conspiracies about Dominion voting machines, conspiracies about, you know, uh, you know fraudulent ballots appearing out of nowhere, all kinds of things. That's the real challenge. I think that's the next frontier is what do you do when the person who is supposed to be counting the votes doesn't actually believe that the votes are valid. And the, the problem, I think, right now is that there's a lot of denialism in the Republican Party that this is still happening and that these folks are still running. We don't know yet in some of these cases whether they will actually win, uh, but the fact that they're running and they have a lot of grassroots support from rank-and-file Republican voters who also still believe these lies should be a source of concern. Yeah, th- th- I mean, that's the problem, uh, Jeff Zeleny, is... is- Look, I think Adam Laxalt, who is an election liar, who is the Republican nominee for U.S. Senate in Nevada, I think he's been endorsed by Mitch McConnell. Now, to give Mitch McConnell, you know, the Senate minority leader, his due, he was very clear about the election law uh, lies and came out in December uh, about it was time to put aside the the silliness and and Joe Biden was the president-elect. And then, obviously, he criticized uh, President Trump after the insurrection. But he... If you are still part of a system that is supporting people like this nutso Nevada County Commissioner, then you, you can't pretend you're not supporting it. I mean, it's not a red line. I mean, clearly, uh, Senator McConnell wants to win the Nevada seat. I mean, that is the point here. That is one of the most competitive seats uh, coming up over the next uh, few months. So it's not a red line for Senator McConnell or, sadly, other Republicans. I wish this was just an isolated incident. Mm-hmm. But as, uh, as Judge Ludig said yesterday... President Trump and his allies are, you know, fomenting this, uh, you know, the continuation of this lie. But even more, if you look at county election officials across Georgia, across Michigan, many of them are not the same people who were in office in 2020. So the 2022 election will be a very serious precursor for 2024. There are many people installed in these local election offices who do not hold the same standards that people used to. So it is one of the biggest worries for democracy, without question. So, Maria, here's a question. I saw a poll this week that showed that uh, when it came to which party you think will better advocate for democracy, Republicans actually had a one-point advantage. It's astounding. How are Democrats (laughs) losing this when it is so clear and obvious and you have people like Liz Cheney and Adam mm-hmm. Kinzinger and Michael mm-hmm. Ludig and others mm-hmm. talking about what's going on in the Republican Party. How are Democrats losing this messaging war? That's, that is a great question, Jake. But I think one of the things that Democrats need to do more of in this election cycle, and I know the one issue that is front of voters' mind right now is inflation in the economy. But Democrats need to do both. They need to talk about inflation in the economy. And I've said this so many times on your show they also need to continue to talk about what a danger our democracy is in, especially when Donald Trump was not an isolated incident and Donald Trump was perhaps the beginning of trying to figure out how the Republican Party can be the party that at some point will steal an election. The Washington Post had a story about how there were 120 candidates who won their primaries in the last couple of weeks that are all election deniers, right? They're supporting the big lie. 
and many of them are running as secretaries of state, as people who will actually have their hands on the ballots, who could throw them away if they wanted to, and figure out how to fix elections. That should terrify every single American. Those people certainly are election deniers, which is unfortunate. And and to Jeff's point, Ludic said yesterday what we're seeing, unfortunately, across the country is uh, constitutional mischief uh, at the state and federal level. We need to get away from that. But the people you're talking about in that article, yes, they're election deniers, but they're also Republicans who are focusing and campaigning and going to win in the House and Senate on those issues that you talked about. They're focused uh, more than anything front and center out on the campaign trail about uh, inflation, about the crisis at the border, about crime, about foreign policy. And those are the issues that are they're pushing and resonating with the voters. This is one part of their platform, their campaign that they're pushing, but uh, the economic situation is far outweighs what we're seeing in terms of but how the many election. of those candidates are also election deniers and supporters of the big lie. And this is going to be part of the contrast that Democrats need to make going into the midterm elections. So meanwhile, Jeff, uh, sources close to Trump tell CNN's Gabby Orr that he is trying to decide whether to announce that he's going to run for president in 2024 uh, before the midterm elections or not. What what effect would it have, do you think, if he announces before the midterms? Well, he's almost uh, walking up to that line. He was giving a speech in Nashville this afternoon to mm-hmm. the Faith and Freedom uh, organization A, and he said, uh, you know, who wants me to run for president? Of course, in that room, huge applause. But the bigger question is talking to uh, people in his orbit. They don't necessarily want him to be the issue in the midterm election campaign. Republicans are doing just fine here in terms of likely winning back the House, possibly either the Senate. So that is the worry among some Trump advisors, that they don't necessarily want this to become about him. That could motivate Democrats. We'll see what he wants to do, though. There's no question that he has his eye on Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. That is the person, I'm told, who worries the former president more than anything. So that's why he's sort of agitating for possibly uh, announcing now to try and keep some Republicans out. The real question is, probably less if he's going to run or not, it sort of looks like he is, who is going to stay out of the race? Who will he scare out of the race? Uh, and we'll probably see. not DeSantis. Probably and, and not I him, think yeah. He's Jeff's, also on the ballot to run for governor. Right. To Jeff's point about why Republicans might not see a Trump early announcement as being advantageous to them. A lot of these Republicans that Alice is talking about who are running on maybe economic issues and then a little side of uh, election lie, the election lie kind of recedes as you get to the general election. Well, that's not going to be an option if Trump is out there every single Mm -hmm. day. That is what he is talking about. It's what he talked about today. He talked about potentially pardoning people who were convicted of crimes related to the January 6th riot. He was relitigating the disproven and debunked lies and unconstitutional scheme that he had for Mike Pence. That is front and center for Trump, and it will be for anybody who's running at the same time that he's running. And if he does it in 2022, that'll be up and down the ticket. And that, gr- that group is his base. Those people give him a standing ovation for just walking out there. And, and the truth is, he's more of a populist than a conservative Republican, and there's a shelf life for that. And, and many people think, Ron DeSantis and others think, that it's time for someone to step forward that represents the policies of the Republican Party. Good. I hope they support democracy, though. Uh, thanks to one and all. Appreciate it. If you didn't get enough of Abby Phillip just now, and really, when can you, can you get enough of Abby Phillip? Be sure to join Abby for Inside Politics at Sunday at 8 a.m. Uh, Eastern. Coming up, hush money and the sex scandal. The chair of World Wrestling Entertainment is out of the ring and on the rope. Stay with us.
In our money lead, World Wrestling Entertainment boss Vince McMahon is stepping back as CEO and chairman while the company's board is investigating a report that McMahon paid millions of dollars in hush money payments to a former employee to keep quiet about an alleged affair. McMahon has had control of the company since 1982. He turned it into a publicly traded company, Global Wrestling Powerhouse, and a media conglomerate. The McMahon family also has powerful ties to the political world. You might recall McMahon's wife, Linda, held a cabinet-level position in former President Trump's White House as the head of the Small Business Administration. But now, as CNN's Jason Carroll reports, McMahon's daughter will step in as the company's interim CEO. Please welcome the chairman of WWE, Vince McMahon! Larger than life, Vince McMahon, more famous than some of the wrestling stars he helped create. He's the guy. I mean, he's, it's the WWE is Vince McMahon. Um, you can't separate them. WrestleMania! Now McMahon forced to step back from his role as chairman and CEO of World Wrestling Entertainment, WWE, while the company's board investigates misconduct claims against him. His daughter, his interim replacement, the Wall Street Journal reporting McMahon paid a former employee who he allegedly had an affair with $3 million to keep her quiet. According to the journal, the separation agreement prevents her from discussing her relationship. The investigation also looking at other non-disclosure agreements involving misconduct claims against McMahon and another executive. What would have been considered Boys Will Be Boys, which wrestling was built on for decades and decades and decades. And by today's standards, it's not quite as much. I have pledged my complete cooperation to the investigation by the special committee, McMahon said in a statement. And I have also pledged to accept the findings and outcome of the investigation, whatever they are. Wrestling journalist Dave Meltzer says it is tough to predict the fallout from the allegations. Their big defense is that any money that he paid, any hush money that he paid, was his own money and it was not company money. And I think that's the key to the investigation. Over decades, McMahon turned the WWE into a billion-dollar entertainment juggernaut, including deals with Fox and NBC. He will still be in charge of creative content while the investigation is underway. McMahon has weathered past scandals. In 1994, a jury acquitted him of conspiring to distribute steroids to his wrestlers. In the years following, always center stage and always the showman. In 2007, then-reality TV star Donald Trump shaved McMahon's head in a made-for-the-masses feud. Now the wrestling world waiting to see how this latest real-world match will end. And Jake, the WWE is out with a statement of their own saying that the board has retained an independent legal counsel to assist with what they call an independent review of the allegations. As for McMahon, he is staying in front of the cameras. He's expected to be on SmackDown later on tonight. Jake? Of course he is. Jason Carroll, thanks so much. Appreciate it. A river may not run through it anymore, all because of a water shortage hundreds of miles away. Stay with us. In our Earth Matters series now, the Green River in Utah is one of the greatest trout fishing streams in the world. But now its waters are being released toward the Colorado River, which leads into the diminishing Lake Powell, which desperately needs water. 
CNN's Bill Weir reports on how those who depend on the Green River are worried that it will be ruined forever. For those who love to chase trout, this stretch of the Green River provides some of the best fly fishing on the planet. It's phenomenal. I mean, you get people from all over the world coming to fish this. There's guides from New Zealand, people come from South America. Eric Clapton's been up here. Is that right? Tiger Woods, I mean, it's yeah. if you're a fly fisherman, this is one of the places to hit. Come here, buddy. Oh, it's a rainbow. Here we go, chunker. Oh yeah, that's pretty. A big reason why is Utah's Flaming Gorge Dam because it's one of the few dams able to control the temperature of the gin clear water flowing downstream. Wow, these guys are longers. Not too hot, not too cold, creating a Goldilocks zone for bugs, trout, and people who also flock to the reservoir behind the dam and keep the economy alive. So you'd understand if locals get upset at the sight of this. The Federal Bureau of Reclamation released enough raging water this spring to drop Flaming Gorge Reservoir by up to 12 feet. A desperate move to help things downstream on the Colorado, where Lake Powell is down 170 feet and could evaporate into a dead pool with not enough water for hydropower or the 40 million people who drink, farm, and ranch this system from Denver to L.A. There's a lot of people who just get angry and it's their water, it's their kind of geographic possession. And so they don't like it going down to desert cities that also need it. Because the lower Flaming Gorge gets, the warmer it gets. And no more Goldilocks trout. And then any effect on the fishery, especially up here, I mean, that's people's livelihoods. Yeah, yeah. And so people get pretty upset. I can imagine. Or at least heated. Whiskey's for drinking, water's for fighting, right? Isn't that the... <laughs> yeah, that's the phrase. The phrase. Long considered rivals of the fishing guides are the rafting guides who love high flow for more exciting rides and more customers. Sometimes we're on the sides of the fishermen and sometimes we're not. But everyone agrees that for the West to survive, the most important two words today are water conservation. I mean, I always try to remind myself that these water molecules are going to end up in a hot tub in Hollywood or right. watering a putting green in Palm Springs. And we're all part of this system. How do you think people understand that these days? So, yeah, that's great. I don't think we do. I, I, can't, I come from Connecticut. I grew up on the East Coast where water, water law is totally different. Here it's first in line, first in right. It's treated like a mineral. Some farmers in Arizona are some of the last in line, forced to let fields go fallow as allocations are cut. And this week, the Bureau of Reclamation warned members of the Senate of the need to cut up to 4 million acre feet in 2023. That's more than 1.3 trillion gallons, or almost as much as California is allotted in a year. John Wesley Powell, who ran this river in 1869, he, st he stated it to the the federal government. There's not enough water to support the way we have developed. The first guy down the Colorado tried to warn us Absolutely. that this would happen right now. And right? now it is. Like, there's this assumption that it's always going to be there. Yeah. And I don't think people will change until it changes. Until it's not there. 
But as long as there is fun to be had and water to drink, it's easy to ignore the villain's warning in Mad Max Fury Road. Do not become addicted to water. It will take hold of you, and you will resent its absence. Bill Weir, CNN, Vernal, Utah. And our thanks to Bill Weir for that report. Coming up, the terrifying video of a family's encounter with a black bear. Bear with us. It has a happy ending. A frightening encounter, one that will make you pause and reflect. He's following you, babe. A Utah family was hiking in British Columbia, Canada, when they discovered a black bear blocking the trail to their car. The bear following the parents and their kids up the trail as they tried to escape. Now, the bear never got aggressive, and eventually it lost interest more than half a mile later, thankfully. Be sure to tune in to CNN State of the Union this Sunday. My colleague Dan Abash will talk to Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm, January 6th Select Committee member Congressman Adam Schiff, Republican Congressman Fred Upton, and Democratic Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee. That's at 9 a.m. at noon Eastern. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at the lead CNN. You can download our podcast. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer right next door in the Situation Room. I'll see you Monday. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.